letter of Paul to Hebrews. We told you in the beginning, we just take Paul as the author of this. We don't want to spend all our time saying the writer, the author, the one who wrote this and all that kind of a thing. The earliest manuscripts that contain all of Paul's epistles have the book of Hebrews immediately following Romans. So I just stick with the idea that Paul is the writer of this. Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So let's have a word of prayer. We're going to talk about holding on to your inheritance. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you. We're grateful for the things you're doing around the world. Thank you, God, for the testimonies that I hear every day of uh, your grace and your mercy and your power that is ministering to people across this earth. But here we are this evening in this facility needing the help of the Holy Spirit to teach these scriptures. I pray, God, that what we minister will be a good word sown into good ground in all of our hearts. So give each of us ears to hear. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at what in many ways was a uh, humorous thing was we talked about chastening, chastisement. And we talked about sometimes how our parents chastened us in ways that weren't always nice. And verse 11 gives us the objective of chastening. It says, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. That is, nobody's happy about it ever. It says, but is grievous or hard. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Fruit of righteousness. Fruit of righteousness. Say that phrase with me. Fruit of righteousness. Now, now that's the point. That's the goal of any kind of disciplinary procedures that the Lord brings us into. God never does anything without a purpose. He's not just out here randomly doing things like we do things. I think we were talking earlier about somebody being nervous and when they go into a person's house or something, they just have to be busy doing something. Their hands have to be moving and stick their hand in a jar and mess with M&Ms or whatever. Just, just have to be busy. But God doesn't do anything without a purpose. He's not nervous. Every objective has an ultimate goal. And if the Lord is dealing with you individually, as he deals with me individually, then there must be something in me or in you that he feels like should be dealt with. Now, I can never know what it is or why it is that God's dealing with you that way. Vice versa. But we do know that when God's hand is upon us, whether it's for conviction, 
And when we look at the children of Israel, when it's heavy upon them to discipline them, the one thing we do know is that it's God. The difference between conviction and condemnation is that condemnation comes upon you to make you feel so bad about yourself and to leave you in such despair that you really don't believe there's a way out. So you don't see any exit sign at all. You feel hopeless. Conviction, however, when it comes upon you, it is going to cause you to be able to recognize where you've sinned or erred, but it's also going to point you in the direction of the blood of Jesus so that you can recognize in an instant you can be forgiven. That is the difference. Conviction inspires hope ultimately in your relationship with God, whereas condemnation presses you down to the point that you feel like you're damned and condemned. Now, those two things are very important. Many people don't know how to respond to conviction. They misunderstand it and believe it's condemnation. Some people don't react well to condemnation, and we see a lot of bad things happen to people because they feel like their life is in a state of despair. And it doesn't have to be that way. Well, verse 12 then says that we should lift up our hands. Then it also tells us our feeble knees. The reason verse 12 is following verse 11 is because you know as well as I do when, when a person is being chastised, one of the immediate reactions, if a person recognizes they've done wrong and they've displeased the one who's chastening them, is there's this feeling that comes over them where they begin to sulk, you know? And in ancient times, if, 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 like, like with Christ, when he was scourged by the, by the Romans, can you imagine after the kind of a beating that he took, how difficult it would be to, to stand up under the weight of all of that brutality? And that punishment. So there would be this kind of slumpingness. This is all figurative speech that Paul has given us in this. But this, this attitude where you just feel bad. Even after when you were spanked when you were a child. You know, you didn't particularly walk around the house like you were happy with the shoulders rolled back right over your hips. There was something in you that just felt bad about what was taking place. So the Lord says, if the ultimate objective is to, to bring forth a fruit of righteousness from your lifestyle, he said, since you know that, stand upright. Because if you remain in that condition too long, then more than likely a root of bitterness is going to develop. That's what's going to happen. So verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. Once you get yourself back together and you're able to get in the right condition that you need to be in, then continue in the right path. Now, God has ordained a path for your feet just like he has for mine. Because when we talk about someone that's lame, see, what, whatever is lame or hurting or excessively bruised tends to stop forward progression, stops moving gets off the path and turns and goes in the opposite direction. Anytime somebody backslides or becomes distracted by their inward or outward pain, it's at that point you're going to find people who need healing. Because see, all healing that is needed in the body of Christ is not physical having to do with the body. Luke chapter 4 talks about people being healed of a broken heart. Yeah, there are many people with wounded spirits, bruised hearts, Scripture speaks of them as bruised reeds who, rather than leaving them as they are, they need to be put back together and made whole. And if, if we can do that, we can get them back on the path. It's hard to get people on the path when inwardly they're lame. 
Spiritually, they're hurting so much that they cannot respond to the, the grace of God, which will produce the healing. And the, the person who is experiencing excessive sorrow has a difficulty hearing what you're trying to say when you want to encourage them. Remember that. You know, you may talk to people and you can't understand why you tell them over and over again as they're walking through a storm. You tell them 15 times and they still don't seem to get what you're saying. It's because they can't hear you that well in the middle of a storm. Uh, I use this illustration quite often. If you live out in the country and you have a, a barn or something 50 yards from the house and it's a terrible storm outside and the wind is blowing 50, 60 miles per hour and let's say the snow is coming down, it's pretty much near a whiteout and you realize that you need to go out to the barn, turn the generator on, you need to go out to the barn to feed the animals or to do anything. But you say to your family, now I'm, I've got to go out here to the barn. I don't care how long it takes me to get back here. Do not come out here looking for me. Because you can't see what direction to go. But then you say, stand there and just yell my name or something. So the person goes out there and after several minutes, then the person starts screaming the name and shouting the individual's name. But it's very unlikely that they're going to even hear all the yells and the screams because of the, the sound of the wind. And this is what happens to Christians. Christians will come to church. They will listen to a, a, a pastor teach. They'll come to a Bible study, hear the word of God spoken to them. But if they feel like their life is in such a, a, a bad storm that it's difficult for them to find their way, they have a hard time hearing it on a Sunday or even in a Bible study. Now, that is not to say that we're not supposed to stand there and yell at them anyhow. And we're not supposed to reach out and try to save them and rescue them. I'm only trying to, to, to help you see that it's easy for somebody to get out of the way. But if we can get them healed, get them whole, we can get them back on the path where they should be. And so that's your role. It, it's not hard to identify people that are bruised. Just pay attention. When you meet them and you recognize it, then use your speech and your language to encourage them. People who believe that they can't do anything right need to be encouraged to know that they have done a lot of things in life that are right, especially if they're serving God. And if they're not serving God, then you tell them to start over with uh, coming to know him. Uh, verse 14 tells us to follow peace with all men and holiness. Without us, you can't see God. Now, if you'll remember in Hebrews 12, verse 2, the first sentence tells us we should be looking to Jesus. But now, in chapter 12, verse 14, we see it's impossible to see the Lord without being peaceful and without being holy. Mm -hmm. To be peaceable and to be peaceful means that you go out of your way to end strife and discord, not to magnify it. You don't want to be a, a sower of discord. I think the book of Proverbs says uh, seven things the Lord hates. One of those things has to do with people that are involved with strife. What is strife? Anything that removes hostility. And the reason the scripture uses the phrase sow strife or sowing strife or soweth strife is because there are certain seeds that can be planted in a person's heart or in a person's ear that will produce rebellion and a revolt and discord. 
I guarantee you for every one of us in here who knows the other person very well, there are certain words that you can utter that will trigger an angry spirit. Yeah. I mean, just turn it on. You better believe I know what pushes my wife's button. If nobody else in here knows, I know what will push her button. And she knows what pushes mine, you see. Well, imagine a person who had no kind of spiritual restraints in their life, didn't even know God, and they just went around sowing discord. You know, the telephone can be a blessing, but it can be a curse if a person doesn't know how to guard their mouth. Mm-hmm. Coffee fellowship can be a wonderful place, but it can be a bad thing if people don't know how to guard their mouth. Going to the barbershop and the beauty shop can be a wonderful thing. It can be a bad thing if people do not know how to guard their mouth. However, I will tell you, I've learned a lot just sitting in places like that. You know, you, yeah, you, you learn a whole lot. Okay, so we want to be peaceable and peaceful, but then holiness is important because God is holy. The one adjective or scripture in the Bible that is used three times to describe the Lord in Isaiah 6 is holy. The scripture never says he is love, 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 or faith, faith, faith. But it does say that the creatures around the throne say holy, holy, holy. The spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. So there's something in us it's inspiring a sanctified lifestyle and taking Christians from sin and separating them unto righteousness. Let's remember what chastisement is about, to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God wants us on the path living for him in such a way that we don't lose sight of him. And it's easy to lose sight of him if our eyesight, our spiritual vision is colored by sin. It's hard to see God when you're just involved with sin, involved with rebellion. And you have to be able to identify those things. What may be a weight for you may not be a weight for me, but things that God says are sins are sins for everybody across the board. Don't change. And the scripture says you should pursue peace. Look at verse 15. Looking diligently. Because we want to see the Lord. Looking diligently. That's, that's something active we're doing. If you walk, let me say it this way. Sometimes a, a lady, and it doesn't have to be a lady, it'd be helpful if the guys would do this, but a, a lady can spend a lot of time cleaning the house and making it pretty and dusting and all of that. And then a friend or a family member can walk in and the first thing they see is a cobweb. Yeah. They, they, they see the one spot where there's still a little bit of dust there. And, and that's where they identify. You, you, you think the lady's going to be happy? No, you better believe she, she's not going to be happy at all. Well, we, we, if we're going to pursue holiness and we're going to see the Lord, then we have to see what's good rather than what's always bad. Even in America, it's one thing to recognize where the nation, as we will say, is going to hell in a handbasket. It's one thing to identify the problem, but we still need to be able to mention some solutions. So you don't want to just curse the darkness. 
You got to be able to provide some light. That's important. That's what the church is supposed to be, a city set on a hill. So those, those times when I, I slave in that house, my wife's gone shopping, and I got to wash those walls down, got to pull that vacuum cleaner out, all those kind of things. You know, one of the funny things that happened, I, I, I told my wife one time, I said, you know, when you go shopping, I do all this stuff around the house, and I'm trying to keep it clean for you and help you the best way that I can. And so one day she said to me, she said, uh, Daryl, go out there on the back porch, get that vacuum clean, and come here and do this living room for me. So I went out there, and I got the vacuum clean, and brought it in there, and, and I had to ask her to come in there and tell me how to turn it on. So she, <laughs> I guess she realized I kind of wasn't doing what uh, had kind of been intimated before. Okay, verse, verse 15. Here's why we're looking diligently to see the Lord. Lest anybody fail or fall from the grace of God. Now, we know it's possible to fall from the grace of God because Galatians talks about that, about somebody who, who hath bewitched you. He talks then asking that question. Then he goes on talking about restore a brother who has fallen in grace. That's in, uh, towards the end of where it talks about the one falling from grace. But here's the thing. When a person falls from the grace of God, it's because of sin. Now, this is a, this is a very detailed thing because I don't want, to, want you to get the impression that I think you can get saved on Monday and lose your salvation on, on Tuesday. And I don't want you to think that I'm saying that uh, if a person is serving God, if they fall away, that means they never were Christian. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is that a person can be devout and love the Lord and be on fire for God and serving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But something happens in their life that causes them to backslide. And at that point, they're failing of the grace of God because they've given up on God. Now, I can never tell you, and no one can ever tell you, when someone has ultimately lost out with God. Nobody knows that. God's the only one who knows that. God writes the names down in the book of life. And if, if, if a book, if a name is ever removed, he would know it. He's the only one that knows if it can be, if it would be removed. Because the scripture says to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, if you overcome, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. So it's a possibility. But you don't ever have to worry about that when you're serving God with your whole heart. You don't have to be perfect. None of us are. So it's not about getting to heaven based on our perfection. This is why it says, lest we fail of the grace of God. I am this far in my Christian life, and I'm no higher. God's standard is way up there for perfection in what he wants. And the difference between where I am and what he desires, the gap is insurmountable for me. But that's where his grace makes up the difference. And if I trust and believe that the grace of God is strong enough to bring me into reconciliation with the Lord and keep me in unity with the Lord, this is how I'm going to sleep good at night. Because I know on any given day, uh, whether it's thinking the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, sometimes doing the wrong thing, it's still a sin. But I lay down in the bed at night and I say, Father, cleanse me of everything I've done wrong today as I go here into this bed and go into sleep land. And I don't do that because I am afraid. 
I do that because I want to avail myself of every opportunity God has given for me to be cleansed. See, lest anybody fail of the grace of God. Then he says in verse 15, lest any root of bitterness spring up. A root is something that develops and is invisible to the naked eye. Okay? So when the farmers plant their seeds and the first sheaf of corn or whatever's coming up above the earth, things down here are already growing. That, that hidden life was already developing and manifesting before that naked eye ever was able to recognize that it was starting to flourish. And this is how bitterness is. Bitterness begins in the heart in a place where no one else is able to see it. It starts with a thought. It starts with you meditating on something that bothers you, something that irritates you, and it just begins to fester. And as you can see in verse 15, just like any other kind of root, it, it grows. Yeah, it, it grows. It, it develops. And believe me when I tell you, just like with anything you plant in your yard or in your field, there is coming a point in time where it will be seen because there is no other thing that can happen other than it manifests. Bitterness will manifest itself. Give it time. It'll come forward in your speech. It'll come forth in the way somebody acts or interacts with other people. Hostility. It'll spring up and it'll trouble you. So that's the first aspect of bitterness. Bitterness makes the owner of the root miserable because they're dealing with it all the time. They're thinking about it. They're meditating on it. They're mad about it. They're stewing over it. And like a pot that, that starts boiling pretty soon, everything starts seeping out under the top of the pot. And that's why the last sentence of verse 15 says, and thereby many be defiled. Once it develops to that point, then it has to start affecting other people. Because if I'm mad at John, it's going to be something quiet in here. He's not going to know anything about it for a little while. But there's going to come a point in time where I'm going to stop talking to him. I'm not going to hang out with him. And I'm probably going to start telling people what I think about him. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. When you wonder, wonder why relationships fall apart, they usually don't fall apart overnight. It's a progressive thing. Mm -hmm. Progressive thing. Same thing with, with, uh, with, with relationships in marriages. They, they have the thing that they cite, irreconcilable differences. Those usually do not begin overnight. Yeah, they've been going on, going on for, for some time. And same thing in the church. I've seen many Christians in church, sit in church week after week, and the more they sit in church, a root of bitterness takes them over. They become wrapped up in it, entangled in those roots. And you know from your study of vegetation that there are some roots that are stronger than others. You go out here and in your yard you've got uh, some weeds out there growing. And if you don't go out there as soon as you see it and dig it up, but you go ahead and you wait till the middle of summer, then when you pull it up, you're pulling up a whole lot of grass with it too. A whole plug of it is going to come up out of there. And, and that can happen with Christians. If Christians don't deal with bitterness and cut at it, work at it all the time, how, how do you work and cut out roots of bitterness? Love. Meditate on love. Read scriptures on love. Fight bitterness with love. If you don't, 
As I said, it'll get, it'll get stronger and stronger. But here's what love says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't think any evil. So the moment the devil begins to bring thoughts into your mind to cause you to think bad about somebody, you have to rebuke those thoughts and stand against those thoughts and pray for the one that the devil is telling you to think badly about. Otherwise, what's in somebody else who's bitter can very well become something that's in you. What is the reason that, I I should say this way, why do farmers pay young people so much money every year to go out and detassel? Because they don't want that cross-pollinization. And if you don't work to keep bitterness out of your heart, no matter how hard you try to keep it to yourself, I can promise you it's going somewhere else. It's going somewhere else. And when that cross-pollinization <laughs> takes place in a church, a pastor, he can think he's got a garden of love and never even know he's got a few or several or many Venus flytraps out there that are just waiting for him to reach for. See, these things are important to know. And, and as a Christian, you don't want to be the one that that grows and develops in. So many become defiled, and that's a good word for it, defiled. It affects their Christianity. It affects their Christianity. Look at verse 16. Lest there be a fornicator or a profane person. Now, verse 15 gave us two sentences after the word lest. Lest somebody fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up. Now we have lest, lest there's a fornicator or a profane person. You know, fornicate, a fornicator, that, that's easy to explain. We know that. Somebody doing stuff they shouldn't be doing outside of the covenant of marriage. But here's the definition of a profane person that we probably never considered in our life. We think of a profane person strictly as someone who uses profanity very often. We say, that, that person's profane. They're, they're unclean. They're involved with the most egregious kinds of sins, unclean things. That's not what Esau was doing, though. Esau's problem was that he had something that was very important, which was the birthright that guaranteed him an inheritance, and he counted a piece of meat of greater value and worth than his own birthright. He sacrificed the birthright and the inheritance to feed his belly. To feed his belly. This is what, what made him a profane person, that he would give in exchange for a piece of meat something of such value. That's a profane person. It's, it's an exchange that's not good at all. And I can give you another illustration of somebody who, who refused to give up their inheritance. And they did opposite of, of uh, Esau. Because Esau's inheritance came to him from his dad. And it was something that was traditional in the family. He lightly regarded it. And because he didn't care about it, he gave it up for something natural. In the Old Testament, I want you to go to 1 Kings 21. All you got to do is look at your table of contents. Just go 12 or 13 books up or so. But 1 Kings 21. Here's a story about a man named Nabal. It's a very good story to know. 1 Kings 12. Excuse me. I'm wrong. I'm 2 Kings, I should be, I believe. I said 1 Kings. Wait a minute. Where's my... 
It's 1 Kings 21, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. 1 Kings 21, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel hard by, or that's another way of saying next to, the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me the vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near to my house, and I'll give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to you, I will give thee the money or the worth of it in money. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbidded me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers. He's a good man. Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Now verse 2 tells us that it was next to the king's palace. He said, I'll give you a better vineyard. Here's the thing. If, if you already have a, a better piece of real estate than what I have, why do you want mine? See, it was convenient for the king. It was right next to what he had. And even if it was better, he probably was under the impression that his workers would get out there and cultivate that ground and make it just as good as anything else that he has. And he said, I even give you the money. It wasn't about the money and it wasn't about another piece of property. Naboth considered the fact that the Old Testament law declares I'm not supposed to give up the inheritance of my fathers. And he didn't even care if it was the king and a gift from the king. He said, I'm holding on to what belongs in my family and I am not going to exchange it for money or another piece of land. That's a good man. And this is how we should be as, as believers. Esau's problem was, if it would have been him in this situation, he would have gave it away for even less money and a worse piece of property because he didn't care about his birthright. Your inheritance should be of such value to you that you would not sacrifice it for anything in the world. Yeah. Let's go to the New Testament now. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to show you two verses of Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse number Oh, where are we at? We're going to look at verse number 18. Yep. And I want you to look at this. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his, what's that next word? Inheritance in the saints. Yes. So we have an inheritance. Let's go back up. Look at verse number four. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have, now this is describing our inheritance, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained a what? Inheritance. See? 
As a Christian, you have an inheritance that comes from the Lord. You receive forgiveness of sin. You receive restoration and reconciliation. You receive the riches of his grace, of which there's an unending supply. You can never exhaust the grace of God, ever. God has so much that he can, he, can, he can readily supply more and more. There's the mystery of his will. There are things that God wants to reveal to you about your life, your conditions of life, all of these things. So why would Esau sacrifice his birthright, his inheritance? Because he didn't care much about it. And Christians do it all the time. And I'll give you an illustration going back here to Hebrews 12 now about how this works in a profane person. In order for Esau to give up what was important for a morsel of meat, there had to be something going on in Esau. There had to be something in Esau that his brother Jacob knew that he could appeal to. Okay? Jacob knew his brother. Jacob knew him. And Jacob understood that I can trick this guy because I, 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 he's carnal. He's carnal. And, and I can give this guy something and I can easily deceive him out of it. Now that doesn't make Jacob a good man because of what he did, but it certainly doesn't make uh, Esau a worse man because of how he exchanged him. He shouldn't have exchanged. He should have just stuck with what he had. But I've seen this many times. The question comes, what would a man give us in exchange for his soul? That's the question in the gospel. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? Lose his soul. Yeah. We think of profanity just as language. But think of the lifestyle that people sacrifice sometimes. The R&B singers, many of them, bluegrass and country western singers, not all of them, but many of them, if you listen to them in interviews and you listen to how they describe being raised in the Appalachian Hills or in a gospel tabernacle or something like that, they're, they're, they're telling you about how they learned to pick a guitar and play the fiddle sitting on the porch with grandma and grandpa and all of that. And you hear story after story about grandma and grandma's values and about God and how he was so central to their life. They walked to church in the morning, came home, walked back to church in the evening, went to several services throughout the week, prayer meeting, midweek Bible studies, young people getting together, all of these things you hear about. And then the, the question you start wondering is, how did you get from that porch where it seemed like God was so central to where you are now, where you're so wealthy and singing about so many things that are not godly? Then you realize if, if you want to be successful sometimes, you, you have to be willing to give up certain things. You have to be willing to sacrifice certain things. There are very few people who become excessively famous. I didn't say wealthy. I said excessively famous. Who haven't along the way had to give up something. Yeah. And sometimes what they give up is much more important than what they receive. I believe that. And I, and I see that in the, the sadness of their lives later on. It goes on to say of Esau, he, he looked for a place of repentance. That is to say, he, he, he looked for a way to put, put it all in reverse. 
He couldn't. He cried. He wept. He was broken over it. He was sorrowful over it because in the end, his dad had gave a great blessing to Jacob. Esau was blessed, but not with the kind of blessing that came to, to Jacob. But, but in the end, he looked for a way. He looked for a place. He looked for some particular thing he could do to put this thing in reverse. That's the place of repentance. He couldn't find it, even though he sought it carefully with tears. And I see these stories of these people sometimes in these uh, biographical documentaries that are on these channel history channels and all this other stuff. They used to have a thing years ago that, that used to come on. It used to be heartbreaking, that, uh, the E. Hollywood story. I don't even think it comes on anymore. But on that channel, they always did biographies of actors and actresses and singers and stuff like that. But the bad thing about it was if you made it on E. Hollywood, you usually were, you were dead. That's the bad thing. You know, they only did people that died. And you look at their humble beginnings, you look at their journey, and you see the sacrifices they make, and then you look at how they ended. I mean, many, many of them, they, they, they left this world before they ever could get back to the foundation. See? This is what was going on with, with Esau's life. He, he wanted to get back, but he didn't know how to get back. See, my, my life has spiraled out of control to such a degree that, that back in the back of my mind, I know I can hear grandma and mama singing them songs, but I can't get back to it because in order for me to get back there, I've got to give up all of this, and I've got used to this opulent lifestyle. I've got used to these connections, knowing these people, and that's how it happened. And it's not always with the wealthy. I can tell you stories like that of people who get involved with uh, uh, adultery, drugs. You just get caught up in it. And you don't even recognize yourself years later once it all, it all falls apart. So verse 17, for all of you know how that afterward, there's always an afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Sad, very sad. Verse number, well, excuse me, the last sentence there of uh, verse 19, though he saw it carefully with tears. So here, here's what Esau is, is working to do. Because Genesis doesn't go into a lot of detail about this. But once Jacob ended up with a blessing, Jacob had to go to another land because Esau wanted to kill him. And Rebekah made sure that she protected her son. But, but later on, later on, you remember when Jacob came back with his family, Esau met him. Jacob thought after two decades that Esau was still so hostile towards him that, that he would come and kill him. So Jacob divided his family up and he had the first group go, then he had the second group go, then he had the third group go. And so he put his, his, his favorite girls up here in the first group, then his not so favorite girls in the second group, then the ones he didn't care so much about back here in the third group. And, 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 and he's thinking, well, we, we're going to see how this will work out with Mr. Esau. Now, now maybe it was in reverse. See? Maybe he put the favorite ones in the back trying to preserve them. But I do know one thing. He, he, he definitely had this, all these different groups with, with Esau. But I like when Esau and Jacob finally got together, there was reconciliation. Reconciliation. Esau reconciled himself to the fact he could not put the blessing in reverse. He recognized he had to live 
with the consequences of his decision. And obviously the consequences of his decision worked out in his favor because the Lord still blessed him. And to be quite honest with you, with Jacob coming back from Iraq, coming back over there towards the promised land, it really looked like Esau had more than what Jacob had because Jacob had to pass through Esau's land. Esau's descendants became the Edomites. But in the end, Jacob ended up with a greater blessing because the descendants of Jacob are the Israelites, and we still have Israelites in the world today, but you can't even find one Edomite. You see, not one. Can't find any. God knew when the blessing was passed on to Jacob, Jacob had the kind of heart that God could use that would continue the line of Israel. So don't, don't sacrifice what you have. If God has blessed you and given you something that's important to you, hold on to it. I like what Mahalia Jackson said one time. She was talking about how with all the singing that she did, the people of the world were coming to her all the time, asking her, please consider singing some non-gospel music, we believe you can make a whole lot of money. Mahalia Jackson said, I promised God when I was younger that this voice would only be used to sing for the king. That's what she said. Now, don't misunderstand me. She could have probably made millions. She did, she did fairly well without going that route. I think when we trust God and believe him, the Lord takes care of us. I do. There, there are a lot of preachers in this world that... Um, Pastor more people than me are far more effective, far more successful, far more wealthier than me. But I do know one thing. In, in, in my life, in following God, I have found if I just simply do what he leads me to do and I'm wherever the cloud is, like that cloud led Israel out in the wilderness, if I'm wherever that cloud is, there'll be manna there in the morning. God will supply what's needed. I found that to be true. You don't always need what you want, but you do need what God desires for you to have. There's a prayer I prayed many times from Proverbs, toward the end of Proverbs, it says, Lord, give me neither riches, lest I forget your name, and give me, don't give me poverty, lest I become a thief. So I've seen a lot of preachers who've grown up with nothing, they're so afraid of being poor again, they, they lay awake at night dreaming of ways to get money out of people's pockets whether it's to sell a shirt, a cup, or something like that, anything, just to get money out of people's pocket. But I've also seen people who are so excessively wealthy that they know how to do it without even using God anymore. You can do it without God. It's become standing up there on the television or standing in front of people, and you forget about who brought you there. But, but in Scripture, it's important for us to know whether how big, whether it's big or whether it's small, the only thing that matters with God is that he has a preacher's heart. There are a lot of good men and women in this world today who pastor small churches, medium-sized churches, and big churches. They haven't walked away from God. Yeah, they serve God. They pray, they fast, they teach their people faithfully, and they've never sold out. Never sold out. So don't you sell out. Be a, be a Christian and love God and do not compromise your virtues and your values. Because sometimes what you get in exchange will be worse than what you had if you remain with God. Okay, let's pray.
Father, we're grateful that you have given us an inheritance that is so important. And Lord, maybe we've never thought about this before. All the things that Ephesians 1 gives to us. What the death of Jesus has brought into all of our lives. You provided healing. You provided grace. You've given us joy. You've made it possible for us to uh, live a happy life and a joyful life. But Father, there are a lot of things that the adversary would offer to us. He would make available to us if we simply would forsake the path, the true path. But God, give us the wisdom to be able to recognize when the devil is trying to distract us. Help us to live close to you. These things we pray for in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen.